Welcome to Shamans Through Time, Tricksters, Healers, Voodoo Priests, and Anthropologists, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpenyi at a Bioneers conference with John Mohawk, Jeremy Narby, and Francis Huxley. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. So this, I'm very excited about this program this afternoon. Uh, I think this, this might turn into be the most fun that I personally will have this, this whole weekend, I hope. Um, the artifact we're going to use to start the discussion this afternoon is a book that was written by our good friend Jeremy Narby, who most of you, I'm sure all of you heard this morning. But Francis Huxley is one of the uh, world's most interesting anthropologists. He's trained at Oxford University. He's written many books about his experiences in Haiti, in the Amazon, and throughout the world. Um, and he, it's a great pleasure to have a representative of the Huxley clan, one of the great intellectual clans of the English-speaking world, Thomas Henry Huxley, Aldous Huxley, Julian Huxley. And it's, he, Francis is a great uh, member of that, of that tradition. So I, I, for one, am extremely excited to have him here with us this afternoon. Um, and the book that, that, that Jeremy and Francis wrote is called Shamans Through Time, and it's a look at the collision of the Western mind over a 500-year period with indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom, and all the hundreds of years of demonization and misapprehension and colonialism and suppression leading to slowly uh, more and more uh, slow insights uh, into the fact that indigenous uh, wisdom might have something going on until very recently the possibility of accepting indigenous wisdom on its own terms, thanks to people very, like Francis and, and Jeremy. So um, that will be the, the touchstone for the beginning of the discussion. But we really felt that in order to, to do justice to this discussion, we had to have an indigenous voice. So the best person that we could think of, absolutely, was John Mohawk. And John Mohawk, who... Um, Uh, John Mohawk was a uh, very famous activist way back in the day that some of us remember in the 60s and 70s, and uh, he was the editor of Akwesasne Notes, which was at that time the, the, the biggest uh, publication in, in Indian country. Um, he's a Turtle Clan Seneca from the Cattaraugus Reservation, part of the Great Iroquois Nation, and he, after his activist days, uh, he's also always been a farmer. He's born on a small farm, and he's still a farmer, so that's another Bioneers theme dear to our hearts, and in fact, John, who we're very honored to, to have sit on the board of CHI, which is the, the parent body which puts on the Bioneers Conference, is very involved in this effort to bring back Iroquois white corn and to grow it, and uh, that's a big part of a, one of the projects we work on. So if you've never tasted Iroquois white corn, that's something else you should ask John about after if you get a chance or, or find some over at the CHI booth. Um, anyway, John has become a very important not just indigenous intellectual, but an intellectual period. He's a professor of American studies at State University of New York at Buffalo. He's written some very important works, including Utopian Legacies, a real study of some of the dangerous tendencies of Western thought. And so we're really pleased to have him uh, participate in this discussion. So we're, we have here three guys who've really been around and have some uh, great insights and great stories to tell. So I think we're gonna try to leave as much time for them to get into uh, a discussion as possible. And then if we have some time, we'll try to open it up for questions at the end. So I'm gonna let Jeremy Narby take it away. And we're gonna try to limit the initial remarks to 10 minutes per individual. And then after that, five minutes, and then see where it goes, all right? My good friend, Jeremy Narby, take it away. Thank you. 
It's one of the pleasures of my life to be up here with uh, these gentlemen who used to be heroes t to me 20 years ago already. Not just much. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> and also uh, with JP. Um, it's a pleasure to be up here with him. He keeps on saying laudatory things about other people. I'd just like to say a laudatory thing about him. He's a, a great guy and a genius, and it's a pleasure to be here with him too. So, fl flattery is like a weapon, you know, you kind of throw it at people <laughs> to take it. So, shamans uh, come from indigenous cultures. Anthropologists used to call these cultures uh, societies without writing. Um, books about shamans until recently were written by non-shamans. Um, so this could get complicated. Um, historically, Europeans got on boats 500 years ago, spread out into the world, and started dominating people and describing them at the same time. And uh, the people who did the describing uh, tended to be um, clergy men. And what they saw when they saw these natives um, fasting for months and swallowing tobacco juice through funnels and wearing collars of stinging ants and claiming to speak with the spirits of nature was devil worship. And in 15, 1600, this was not a very cool accusation because uh, you could easily be burned at the stake back in Europe for the um, same charge. And this is how Westerners described the practitioners we would now call shamans for uh, 200 years. The printing press was invented in the 1450s so uh, textual production on any kind of large scale in which people from non-European societies were described by Europeans started in 1500. That's when the, the game of textual production started. And the first 200 years are just filled with this negative prejudice. These people are talking with the devil. That's what's going on. Well, the Enlightenment uh, arrived in the 18th century, and this is the birth of rationalism. And the first rationalist uh, observers who came upon shamans saw imposters. This was a, a step up for the shamans uh, of the world. Um, and, and actually, it was open-mindedness in the 18th century to say, these people, um, they just claim that they worship the devil, but in fact, they're just a bunch of tricksters, and they don't deserve to be burned at the stake. Quit burning these imposters. Well, so we plod on through the decades and the centuries, and we get to the 19th century, and the gentlemen are sitting in their clubs in London smoking their pipes, and Darwin has just demonstrated that we're linked to other species, and we seem to be evolved monkeys. And so the idea is wait a minute, who are we? Who are we? The Western industrial world. We've dominated everybody with our cannons. We're sitting on top of all this wealth. We're more evolved than these savages, than these primitive societies from the Latin primitivus, born first. Uh, these people are stuck in a phase of, of history before us, prehistory. So to understand who we are, we developed civilized people, we can understand, uh, study the childhood of humanity. Anthropology was born 
on the idea that um, other societies were inferior and that they could be studied scientifically. A racist science, a bad start. But reality is often a complex. It was also a joyful moment because this is the first time that um, humanity made um, a subject of study of itself in our diversity. That's what anthropology also is. And fairly soon uh, in the um, marasma of bad anthropology, some shining lights started going on. Franz Boas, for example, a German-American who went and spent a year with the Inuit or Eskimo in the 1880s, and he concluded that the Inuit were people like you and me, with hearts like you and me. They love their children just like we do. This was news at the end of the 19th century. Franz Boas also said in uh, 1900, the student of anthropology, if uh, trying to study the mentality of another culture, must first take into consideration his or her own bias. The observer of another culture has to become aware of his or her own gaze. Well, once uh, Boaz had trained a generation of anthropologists and they went out into the world, um, we start getting the first written reports of any um, detail and sensibility on shamans in the 1920s. An observer like uh, Knud Rasmussen uh, spent years living with the Inuit in Greenland and recorded word by word um, the, what the shamans said. So this was the first time that it became possible to to learn about the lived experience of uh, this phenomenon that we now call shamanism um, uh, in the words of the practitioners. And what we have in, as the 20th century unfolds, well, finally, cutting a long story short, anthropology's method uh, developed in the first decades of the 20th century is participant observation. And um, it took several decades between the invention of the method to, to apply it to shamanic studies. But when anthropologists started participating as true participants in um, shamanism sessions, all hell broke loose. The cat leapt out of the bag, especially when they started taking these uh, strange beverages and discovered that it wasn't all just a question of uh, superstition what these natives had been saying, but they, one could see for oneself. One could be an atheist, materialist academic and see um, cosmic serpents. Well, the last 30 years of the 20th century, I think, are uh, the first flowering, really. The uh, Western observers realized that there was something going on here that was multifaceted, involved uh, modification of human consciousness and um, botany, psychology, music, and um, performance. A, an explosion of texts started being written by people who had observed shamans carefully, and shamans themselves started to publish books. One of the best books on the subject is by Maria Sabina, the Mazatec healer. Um, it's a small little pearl of a book. So there it is, what we get with this 500-year um, archaeology of uh, knowledge is uh, an unfolding, a flowering. We go from the most closed perspective to uh, an understanding uh, that uh, one can um, gain knowledge by dialoguing with these um, practitioners who 
lie somehow stubbornly outside the um, rationalist path. And it's as if the blackboard of 500 years had been wiped clean, and now we could finally get down to some work. Francis, do you want to? Uh, anthropology is the most uh, interesting discipline because it allows you to do anything you want under the, type, the name of anything that has to do with human beings is obviously anthropology. After my first fieldwork in Brazil with a tribe of uh, more or less ex-cannibals, um, I found cannibals very interesting for family reasons. <laughs> there are many ways to eat people. I uh, then did a, I worked for a year in a mental hospital in Canada, uh, which was one of the more appalling um, peaches, uh, bits of uh, education I've gone through. Uh, a very old mental hospital, over crammed, and I learned the uh, rudiments of the jargon in which people were labeled. Um, schizophrenic, paranoid, hysterical, whatever it was, uh, and went away with a large feeling of dissatisfaction and wondering how it would be in a country where no one, no, uh, this was at the time of the first tranquilizers. Uh, what would happen in a country where they don't know about these measures? And so after having taken advice from such people as Eileen Garrett, who was, uh, um, she had been Conan Doyle's favorite trance medium. Um, and she had set up a, uh, an institute in New York, the uh, Parapsychological Institute, international, I should say. So she funded me to go down to, um, uh, to Haiti to see what they did there. And at the end of my stay, I learned a very large number of uh, novel things, one of which um, is that the course of um, the, what we would call it, the mental perturbation that overcomes shamans and voodooists is just the same. The insights are, uh, come up in the same way, and the really only, the only thing that distinguishes a possession cult from a shamanic one is that uh, amongst shamans, it's the shaman who, uh, puts on, who gets, who, who gets enlivened by the spirit, and the rest of uh, his congregation, his audience, then um, keeps him going in one way or another, but they are not expected to shamanize themselves. Whilst in uh, a possession cult, um, members of the congregation who have been through the first steps of uh, dissociation and then regathering their forces without knowing they're doing so, um, they all come out. I've seen a, a, a dance floor filled with more than a dozen possessed people at the same time. But the whole thing, the, the actual central mechanism is, is very much the same. Now, one of the things that most impressed me there was that the, um, their methods of diagnosis. I've argued this out with uh, psychiatrists in England as to the... Uh, the stupidity of using one label to cover a whole heap of temperaments, especially when people are called schizophrenic, 
And indeed, nowadays, they discover that schizophrenia is one of, is a label covering about 10 different metabolic disorders. And um, to use one label is therefore very misleading and very narrowing to one's imagination. In Haiti, what they do, they diagnose you according to the loi, which is a spirit, a god, an ancestral form of some kind, which is either taking over what it should not or is out of place in you and is trying to get back into place. And um, since they have a very large pantheon of such loi um, added to every day, because when people go off their nuts, they tend to go like shamans into a, a bitter, sullen ref uh, refuge within themselves, and only after a great deal of hard work, sometimes by visiting an accredited priest, do they come out into the florid state of, of um, possession and manifest that uh, spirit that which is in them, which hasn't been able to show its face in public for however long it may be. So these pantheons um, come from West Africa, from Angola, from the Congo, from Ethiopia indeed even, um, and they uh, say to people, aha, you're suffering from uh, Sobo, who is a, a thunderous spirit who deafens you with ringing in your ears and spots before your eyes, and there is a whole ritual activity by which you summon this spirit um, and you sleep on the point, the magical point of this spirit, and after a somewhat painful initiation, um, it comes and takes you over, and after that, um, you have to go and renew your contact with this um, every week, if possible, because if you don't, you're back at square one again. So it's a lifetime's occupation, just as it is a lifetime's occupation to be a shaman. In many parts of the world, um, to be labeled as a shaman, to be, uh, fills people with horror and detestation because it's a murky, ugly, difficult profession which isolates you from the rest of your people, a very difficult, onerous one in which you really have to set yourself for months, if not years, to get over this particular impediment in your nature, in your character, which has been shoved into you. Well, I have met uh, shamans not only in, uh, uh, of the kind in Haiti that I was talking of, certainly a number in Brazil, including a very interesting urban shaman from Rio, whose principal spirit was none other than the late Emperor Nero of Imperial Rome. It was the first time I'd understood who Nero must have been. He was a very, very interesting man who employed sadism in the most wonderful, interesting fashion. <laughs> he knew about sadomasochism, as I've only known one other man to know about it. He could apply uh, pains and uh, mental torments and uh, smiles. He had a long lantern face, and when he was possessed by this character, his eyebrows would go up, uh, he would have a slight frown, his eyelids would half close, um, his 
there would be a wolfish smile upon his face. And the first time I saw it, I thought, well, there's a man who's saying, come closer or I'll bite you. <laughs> but he had, like uh, a, a Scottish psychiatrist, uh, Audie Lang, um, he had what in the Bible is called the discernment of spirits. And I became friendly with him, and for quite a time I would be attentive to everything that he was doing, looking over his shoulder and wondering, um, how is it he knows how to do that? Um, because my own imagination and uh, learning had, uh, well, you understand, a psychiatric background or even a semi-one is not very good for the soul. And uh, I, had to, <coughs> I had to relearn a whole different attitude of actually uh, looking at people. And um, I could see what he was looking at. I used to follow him. He used to greet his audience in the form of Nero and go around looking, smiling wolfishly at everyone, shaking their hands. And though he spoke not a word of English, my first encounter with him was in England. He'd come by invitation. And um, to see how he made out what other people were up to. It rather reminded me of uh, the family doctor that my mother had found when I was young, who one day, he was a great friend of hers and of the family, came in from his rounds in the district for a cup of tea, and uh, he opened the door, stopped there, looked at her, and said, you've got me big dysentery. And so she had. Uh, well, this is the first time I'd have seen diagnosis at 20 yards, and I was very much impressed, and I was very much impressed for the same reason, um, following this Brazilian around and seeing how he diagnosed and what he was looking for, and then follow, if he t decided to treat somebody, uh, what he was going to do about it. There's nothing like uh, apprenticing yourself to one of these people if you really want to understand what's happening. In fact, I can't think of any other way of doing it. You have to get it into your, uh, into your own system. Um, this is part of the oral tradition, and uh, book learning is very useful, but it has a dreadful way of cutting one off from one's sense impressions, especially from the ones that one hears with. Um, my first fieldwork in Brazil, when I came back, and started leafing through my uh, field notes, I was horrified at the fact that I had written down the meaning of what I had been told, but not a word um, uh, fresh from the, uh, from the mouth of anybody. I hadn't got the lilt of the phrase, I hadn't got the, uh, uh, the poetics of that language. And so I set myself, I realized that I hadn't been actually listening to uh, the words that uh, were spoken. So I spent, uh, I spent nearly eight months um, learning how to remember words rather than meanings. And uh, this proved to be one of the most uh, mind-clearing things I've ever done in my life and allowed me to continue my anthropological career as far as I've been able. So any of you who are interested in the shamanic vocation, um, I should advise you to give up reading for about six months for a start, 
listen to the words you're told and remember them by writing them down. It'll be very hard for you to begin with, but very well worth the while afterwards. And noticing body English and things of that nature, because it's in those things that one can discern the spirit of, of people at any rate. And if you're looking at nature, it's also those things which come to you. It's the appearance of things that make themselves known to you by which you then can diagnose or make use of what you are looking at. John? I want to begin by uh, really recommending that people who are interested in this topic read both books. For me, it was useful to read The, uh, the Cosmic Serpent first and then uh, the 500 years, because, but well, I don't know if that would be the same for you, but it was for me, because uh, when I read the, the Cosmic Serpent, what made the book really uh, un, you know, unique, aside from the fact that there was a, there was a kind of, I, I like the, the voice in the book, <laughs> as a, a good voice, but what made it unique was that it was a revelation that, Jeremy was willing to admit needed or uh, that, that people in this culture, in order to bridge that culture, were going to need to compare notes with this culture. And he found uh, in the visions that came from his uh, adventures that there was a connection. And then he found a universal connection. He found that people who had been studying some form of, of uh, ancient medicines had, had uh, the same symbols in many different cultures. I found that to be very persuasive, kept me reading. Then secondly, he laid out the theory. And uh, I can say this, I come from a culture that doesn't have uh, psychotropic drugs of any sort like what's described in the book, but that has almost exactly the same theory of healing that he described that they had. Almost, it's almost precise. Now, this business about shamanism, this is a complex topic because a lot of cultures believe that some people have powers because they are who they are, and some people get powers at some point in their life and lose them later, or some people are born with them, or some people develop them, blah, blah, blah. It's, it, but it's not usual that you wake up to some morning and decide, I think I'll go to shaman school and get that. Second, uh, there's been a, there has been developing in the second half of the 20th century a greater, not only tolerance, but curiosity that, that sometimes verges on a sort of, of informed playfulness about shamanism, which later has developed into a more serious playfulness about it, where people would look at it and say, well, I understand that theory, and I'm in favor of that. It sounds good for me. So you see people in many different walks of life who don't look at all like they have the kinds of backgrounds that come from you know, the ones I know. I mean, people, uh, it's almost a disaster to, to, to think that you've been tagged to be a medicine person in some cultures, and mine it is. I mean, it's really like it's not something that you would wake up and wish for because uh, it takes up your life if you're gonna do that. 
And then the other piece about it I wanted to mention, which, which I like the honesty of the books, because the second book actually uh, has articles in it that explore my major, what, why I'm, I'm uh, reluctant to say, oh, we can all go this way uh, in the 20th century. And it's because you start with a culture that has a 5,000 or 10,000 year experience in a given environment of plants and animals. Inside that culture, what you find is people who are relatively isolated from other people, they live in small and very intimate groups. Sometimes they live in communal housing. And in those environments, and whenever you have those environments of small, intimate things, people emerge in there that have power uh, in the group. They might not have power in another group, but they'd have power in that group. You can see that in the 20th century and things like the Jimmy Jones stuff and this and that. But, but I know that in a sm the small communities, there's possibilities of people developing that are not there in the cities. You know, the, the, the intimacy is important. The, the intimacy between the, the culture and the plant life is important. So you get to big societies and that's not present for people. So I kind of thought, well, people aren't going to be able to make that shift. And then uh, the other piece is that um, when you look at the North American Indian cultures, there are, I've, I've, I grew up in that. I mean, it, it wasn't that I ever came to it. I, I was born in it. And so what would be to other people strange and unusual ceremonies and practices, those were to me the normal. I, I remember I was about nine or 10 in those days people got their view of the outside world by going to the movies. The movies cost like 35 cents, and you had to go into town. Everybody was there on Friday night, and, and as, a, as a kid, we, we went with somebody, so the kids went to the movies. And I remember going to this movie, and it, it was a movie that said something like, you know, the strange world of so-and-so. And all it was is it was a series of uh, clips in which it showed people in exotic cultures. In one culture, some people putting pins through their cheeks, and the next color, the next picture, some guy was jumping off this platform with his feet tied to the rope, and boom, and then I'm sitting there like everybody else, enjoying myself like crazy, you know, people walking on coals, doing this, doing that, and then all of a sudden they came up with a with a clip about the false faces. <laughs> I thought, what's what's strange about that? <laughs> like, they showed my culture, you know, that people because in my culture people take they take hot coals and uh, put their hands in the hot coals and blow the the disease away from somebody uh, using coals and tobacco. And uh, anyway, when I saw that, I I I was kind of shocked I, and thought that was you know unusual. Anyway, uh, years and years later, I, uh, I went on a great uh, tour, a series of them. In the old Akwazasni Notes days, we used to do a thing called the White Roots of Peace, and we went all over the country. We went, it would look to somebody like we were going from college to college, but that's not exactly accurate. We, in between the college stops, we often went to different Indian places, and always we were representing, you know, like the traditional movement. So we were always invited in, and they gave us a meal, and that it on. If there was a ceremony going on, well, we got to go to that. So I got to see a lot of ceremonies I'm sure weren't open to the public. And, and on several occasions, I saw things that you can't 
explain <laughs> so well. <laughs> but one of my, one of, I'll just tell you one of those, kind of innocent, but it was one of my favorite moments. Uh, we went to, uh, there was a big movement in the Cree country uh, in the Edson National Forest, a group of Crees had moved away from the reservation and they were living in the, in the forest and uh, we went to visit them and there was a famous guy there who did a lot, he was a very famous shaman and uh, so he invited us in and went to the sweat lodge and when you go to this, he, he had lots of things he did, the, the way the world sparkled up and he had there was showers of sparks, and there was this and that and the other thing going on. When it got dark, you felt things hitting you on top of the head, and everything else happened. And then he stopped, and sitting in the glow, and the sweat lodge was hot, you know, like they can, those guys can really do you in with that. <laughs> anyway, he was sitting there, and he said some stuff to us, and then he started, he just started telling us where we'd been, what had happened to us so far, and where we were going to go next. But he had this, there was this one sequence I'll never forget. <laughs> he says, you have a friend. He says, and your friend is driving a blue bus. He says, today your, blue fr your friend is over the water somewhere, and the bus broke down. But he says, he's going to keep going, and then he's going to go here, and he's going to go there, and this, that, that, the other thing's going to happen to him, and blah, blah, blah. And he told a story about our friend. And we're all sitting here thinking we did have a friend that had a blue bus. And uh, we had no idea if he was broke down someplace over the water or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So there was about five of us sitting in this group. Anyway, when we got home, I uh, asked the guy, I said, uh, anything happened on your trip? And he, went, he went to this Hopi snake dance. And he said, oh, yeah, I said, we got to the Missouri River. And right in the middle of the bridge, he says, our car broke down. <laughs> he went on and on. There were a lot of things that were said in that, in that little sequence. This was a guy who had no idea we were coming, didn't know who we were, didn't know anything about us. And uh, I come from another culture where this was mostly done for the purpose of healing, not for the purpose of, you know, telling what's going to happen next or this or that. He just did that to prove to us that this was cool, you know, that he could do this sort of thing. And uh, after that, I had... Now, m mind you, I didn't come to it very skeptically anyway. I mean, I was already a convert in the sense I was born to be a convert. And, so I knew that, uh, you know, I'd seen, I'd seen healing, and uh, I, that wasn't a problem for me. I didn't, I, nobody had to convince me that this was a workable thing. But uh, this one guy, he, had, he was pretty good. And then later, I saw more and more and more. So I kind of just accepted, sort of, that some of this stuff had some, uh, something to it. But to explain it, they always told us, don't try to explain it. It's a mystery. You can't understand it. It's beyond our capacity to do well, this book actually has some interesting things about it in that if, the, if you started knowing that, all the rest of that kind of had a certain sense to it because it's true that the practices that I've seen are exactly consistent with what you describe in your book. They're exactly consistent. In fact, they're common. It's not even extraordinary. Of course, there's a lot of... You know, people in, in the cities don't know, maybe you do know, but there's a lot of this goes on. <laughs> there's, you know, like people are out there doing this every day in some places, and it's just like, it's, it's not extraordinary. And uh, there's a lot of healing, and, there's a, lot, and a lot of people are, are distressed. You know, they, they come with all sorts of problems, and those people who agree to address their problems they have, to, they have to dedicate a lot of time to that. I mean, it's like it's, it takes up, you know, a lot of their time. It's not a casual 
It's not a casual thing. The people that knock on your door are knocking on your door because they need something. I mean, it's like a, it's a big, big deal. Uh, secondly, you have to maintain, I think if you're one of these guys in the, in the Indian communities, you have to maintain two things. One is you can never brag about it. <laughs> and you can't tell other people. You can't put a sing, shingle outside saying, you know, shaman, ours, such and such, such, because the people in your own community won't use you anymore if you do that. The other piece is that uh, once you're engaged in it, you're kind of engaged in it for the long run until you find out you can't do it anymore, which is to say it doesn't work for you anymore. So anyway, I, I just wanted you to know this. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm really uh, supportive of the idea that are, that are here, the idea that there might be a way to, to bring it into some kind of uh, serious scientific con conversation at some point. I really appreciated that your voice was one of uh, taking seriously something that people had not taken very seriously. And that um, it, had a, it had a kind of uh, aura of, uh, of, of respect to it that I really appreciated. So um, that's my testimonial on, on both books. Uh, the other one, the second book is a collection of articles, but it's a, it's a brave collection. It's not, it's not a collection of all the articles that support everything that I've been saying up until now. It's a, it's, it goes through and looks at different, different points of view and uh, from different periods in history and stuff. It's very worthwhile reading both books. Um, Jeremy, I thought perhaps you might want to begin to address something that I think might be of interest to the audience, which is this question of how might shamanic practices relate to what people are interested in today and do today. I suspect many people in the audiences here have perhaps had some types of experiences and interested in that, if you might want to engage that. I think it's no mystery that uh, there are many people who have come up from groups like the Uniado Vegetal or, the, uh, or other uh, teachers from the Andes and the Amazon and so on, and many people, I'm so sure in Marin County, uh, although I'm not from here, um, I suspect, uh, just by looking at their eyes, have it, at least... Uh, experimented somewhat, so, uh, you know. Um. <laughs> well, all right. Well, you realize that that's a difficult question, don't you? <clears throat> I think that um, grown-ups should be free to ingest the plants they want to. And I, Could you give me uh, your definition of grown-up? <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Well, I was going to add that I, I think that um, people should be as fully informed as possible, and so maybe that's part of the definition of what a grown-up is, somebody who um, informs herself a little bit. Um, so, um, and, you know, there are plants like um, Datura, for example. I don't want to remain on it uh, too long. It does seem to me that it has a kind of a dark uh, energy to it and that people who get involved with it too much go for power and, uh, and then the hard drive gets a bit scratched and, um, you know, it's a, it's a really rough plant. Uh, but there are traditions in the, in the Peruvian Amazon, they're all... There are maestros who work with datura, and depending on which part of the plant you use, it's a very 
powerful plant, but it has good sides and bad sides. In fact, they say that the, the spirit of Datura is precisely a double being, a, a little one and a big one, and sort of good cop, bad cop. But um, anyhow, that's something else. Ayahuasca usage, uh, it's, it's already, uh, ayahuasca is already being used in, in cities. It's, t it's taken out of its Amazonian context, out of the forest, and um, you know, people are, are making uh, syncretic uh, religions with it and experimenting. So, um, you know, to have a position that would say, well, people shouldn't take ayahuasca uh, out of its indigenous context and out of the Amazon uh, is just wishful thinking at this point. I don't really have any experience of the organized ayahuasca cults. I'm an agnostic, personally. Uh, it seems clear that ayahuasca is a powerful psychotropic and that even though it's um, more or less brain-compatible, because the main active ingredient seems to be the dimethyltryptamine that um, mammal brains also seem to produce, nevertheless, it's a very powerful mind-modifying substance. And I think that just drinking powerful ayahuasca by yourself is a recipe for trouble, though there may be people in this room who do it all the time and who think it's... Uh, you know, a fine thing for them. But it's not something that I'd recommend widely, and it's certainly not anything I practice. My practice is going to the Peruvian Amazon, which happens to be part of my job, so it's kind of handy, and, and working with uh, maestros who have a good reputation and uh, whom I respect and who have a clean heart. Uh, half the experience is the, the singing of the maestro. And so it's not just about guzzling ayahuasca, it's about who you drink it with and, and then what you drink it for. It's uh, something that uh, one does to, to think about important questions, like what is the intelligence in nature, or how should I handle this uh, uh, change in my life at this point? Um, so I think it can be very uh, helpful, obviously, for uh, an individual who wants to do personal exploration, enhance creativity, uh, and so on, or, or just some physical healing. Um, and much has been written on, on this subject. But I think that the indigenous people of the Western Amazon should be referred to as the uh, authorities on ayahuasca usage, just like if you want to talk about uh, red wine production, Bordeaux is the place where, with all due respect to Napa Valley. Um, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so the indigenous people of the Western Amazon, uh, I think it would be good for all the people who are interested in ayahuasca in this world if there were a, a kind of a university created by, run by the indigenous people of the Western Amazon where they could bring in their specialists and, and non-Amazonian people who are curious could come and learn about it. It's a serious path of knowledge. It's not for sort of uh, just experimentation in the suburbs. And the thing that uh, is suspiciously disappears from the radar when ayahuasca comes into the Western world, the, there's a whole half of it in the indigenous world that is the dark side, power, uh, abuse of power. The, the whole thing about a, a healer who can actually heal and who, who has power is that the, the, the stronger they get, the more the temptation to abuse their power grows. And so that's the role of the community, to keep an eye on the healer and to keep that uh, 
Jaguar down. Well, and then there's a the whole world of paranoia, suspicion, witchcraft, uh, magic darts flying all over the place that goes in these ayahuasca-using societies. It, ayahuasca is not presented uh, among, for example, Ashaninka people as being this groovy thing that you, you might do next weekend. It's, a, it's always a kind of a, a shady thing that you're not quite sure whether you want to get involved with it or not. Um, but when we start seeing ayahuasca usage in the Western world, suddenly one only hears about healing and the positive side of it. Um, so I think some discussion would be welcome uh, about the, uh, the darker side of this phenomenon. And simply, you know, it's a mind drug. You can actually harm somebody easily if you know how to do it by administering ayahuasca to them and then messing with their minds, you know. I think it's pretty clear that ayahuasca can fuel um, thirst for power. And so uh, one wants to keep an eye on these practitioners, especially when they, they get good. And actually, getting back to Bordeaux, um, one would want to look at the, the quality of the, the beverage also. This is something that's rarely discussed. And there's all kinds of admixtures like datura that might be be worrying. So the, the more discussion, like a, a wine critic, you know, if only there were a few Robert Parkers of ayahuasca who could go around and taste the different uh, things and, you know, recommend the specialist. Francis, I have a feeling you might have something to say about the dark side for some, for some reason. <laughs> yes, it's only too uh, apparent when you get into such places that um, there are people I would not wish to take uh, any uh, mind-altering substance with in the same room. I really would not. I have, to my uh, sorrow, early in my life, been in the same room with powerhouses of um, bad smells, bad vibes, bad, bad, bad. <coughs> <laughs> and I've suffered from it. <laughs> In fact, my very first trip was with a man who was so hypermanic, um, he couldn't stop talking, and when he did, there was a very peculiar silence fell, uh, and um, the, the, well, his, the results of his uh, normal activity on me were uh, painful, real painful, and lasted quite a time. Um, I, I'm not the only one who uh, has felt such things. In the early days, um, I was uh, in the 50s, for example, when they were still, uh, uh, LSD was still in the hands of uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, and others. The, um, the psychiatrists used to administer it in white coats with clipboards and pencils, and they noticed that every one of their clients developed paranoid system uh, uh, syndromes. And no wonder, I mean, to have someone listening to your every word and writing it all down. Jeremy <clears throat> Narby is an undoubted pseudo-psychotic about to have a <laughs> an inspirational fit, which uh, we must stop immediately. <laughs> Uh, it's terrible to be, I mean, even without any such stim stimulation, to be in the company of these people. <laughs> and um, to be in the company in, in academia, 
uh, at any university when you discover your department is filled with um, uh, the most rabid forms of life. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's not only discouraging, but it's actually uh, it's like committing suicide in public to open one's, <laughs> one's heart to them. It's, uh, it's death to the system. Um, I wouldn't go back to academia for anything. <laughs> But then who is one to go and see when one wants uh, good advice? That's uh, another thing. Well, it's word of mouth usually, as it usually is. I mean, the best way of finding out who you want to see is by word of mouth with someone you, you, you trust. As for magic darts, I would like to say uh, we have a little, um, we have quite a few selections of magic substances and darts and even vagal forms. And um, that Brazilian I knew could manifest magic substance, which he called ectoplasm. It was very interesting to see him at work. One day he, he, uh, he took me aside and said, um, uh, when I get going, um, that man over there is going to faint, and then um, that woman. And I'll get their ectoplasm, he called it, and then I'll be able to do what I can't do without. Short enough, within 20 minutes, that man fainted. Four minutes later, that woman fainted over there. And then, whoosh, did he get going, that man? And he did uh, whatever it was he was doing uh, with complete precision and certainty and uh, another, another cure to his record. So um, this particular ectoplasm he had cut open with a razor blade the skin. He, he just passed a razor blade on the skin um, just over the rib cage of a woman who had been uh, biopsied as having a, uh, a cancer, a, a, a bad tumor there. And so the little beads of blood, he got a glass, turned it upside down, cotton wool on the rim and over, and then he started pressing it. And then after three or four minutes, he whipped off the cotton wool and there already was a thing like a white dog turd growing, apparently concreting out of the lymph or whatever it was that was flowing from this little scratch. Then he told a friend of mine, you do this. And as she did it, one could see, I saw to my absolute horror, this stuff growing. And I thought, what is it? I can actually see it growing. And then he whipped it off, and um, he had apparently promised one person at this congregation that he could take it to a lab to have it analyzed, but instead he gave it to another fellow and said, put it down the lavatory and pull the plug because it's too dangerous. Well, all this made me wonder exactly what it was. Um, it was certainly painful enough to my sensibilities as to make me feel sick at both ends simultaneously. And when I had uh, retreated for the moment and washed my back of my neck with cold water, you know, how one needs to do such things occasionally, went out again, and there he was coming down the passage, and he said, hey, anthropologo, what do you think about all that? And I said, 
I don't know, it's just quite remarkable. What do you think of it? He said, I don't know, and went away with a very satisfied smile. And <laughs> <laughs> well, this, um, I don't know what it is. I've, I've, and I lost interest after having questioned a number of stage magicians. How would you stage ectoplasm growing out of you? Um, not one of them had an idea. I don't have any idea, but I could see that the sight of one person fainting after you'd guessed and then another uh, would give, and he calls it taking their ectoplasm, taking their awareness from them and using whatever is behind the outside conscious awareness um, for his own uses. And when one hears of people doing similar kinds of things, without this kind of dog-turd ectoplasm, but magic darts or um, strings and other, all kinds of things you can fashion this stuff into. Um, I don't think it's entirely an illusion. No, if it is an illusion, it's an illusion of something real. And um, so do be careful if you ever meet up with someone who's ectoplasming you. There are... <laughs> Uh, people who eat ectoplasm, I've discovered. Um, protect your ectoplasm. <laughs> John, I know that's a tough act to follow, but why don't you uh, take a cracker? <laughs> uh, I can't help but reflect on this sort of thought, and this is a half-baked thought, and I haven't really sorted out how to go about unpacking it. But if there's a, the biggest difference, in my opinion, between the West and the way it thinks about the world and uh, the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere uh, comes from the fact that in the Western Hemisphere, the, the focus is entirely different on what is sacred. The, uh, the Mayan Indians used to believe, probably still do, I'm sure they do, some of them do, that, that corn was a goddess. And they understood corn to be a goddess as a symbol of the cosmos. So in its own right, corn is pretty remarkable stuff. I mean, you get this little grain, you know, put in the ground, and next thing you got an eight-foot-tall plant, and it has enough on the one cob of corn to keep an adult person alive for one day. Uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty good, you know, pretty good magic. But it goes beyond that because uh, the way people understand the, the universe the corn is, is like a reflection of something else. It's, it's not the whole thing, it's just, it's just a manifestation of something else. What is the other? In the, in the most ancient of our, our religions, uh, the universe is the source of something. Uh, it's the source of, of life. That, and, and really when you look at what is sacred, it's the life that's sacred. It's the, this idea of, of life as a force, a force of, of something. But it's not a force that you can take lightly. I use corn as kind of example because uh, it works for me really easily to understand how it works. The Mayans thought it was a god and that they were made of the corn. The, the, our flesh is of the flesh of the corn because they ate that as it sustained them. So they saw the, the connection. It was, it was corn, earth, human flesh. We're in a cycle, and they were clear about that, understood how it worked. Now along comes uh, Europeans, they get the hold of corn, and then they think, well, you know, corn, 
grow, make money. And so they come up with a different plan. They use uh, petrochemicals, they use, you know, uh, these herbicides, they got this, that, other thing. So today, uh, they raise corn, right? They raise millions of acres of corn. If you took all the corn raised in the United States this year, and you put it in one field, that one field would be the size of New York State. And all those fields where they're raising this corn, most of those fields where that corn is, they're in the, they're in the uh, watershed that feeds into the Mississippi River. And of course, what's feeding into the Mississippi River is all the fertilizer, the pesticide, the herbicide, and everything else that goes with the corn. And growing out of the bottom of the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico is a growing huge area of the Gulf of Mexico that's dead. It's dead because of the affluence. Most of that is from the corn. And you wonder, remember the corn is a goddess, but it's also a trickster, right? Does, do these people own that corn, or does that corn own them? And where does that take them? We have relationships with, with plants that have what we could call unintended consequences. And I'll tell you what, those Indians always knew that you could have unintended consequences. That was this dark side. <laughs> there was always a, a, a consciousness that you have to treat these things very carefully and very respectfully. And you have to be really thinking through everything you're doing with this stuff. If you're just out there planting this stuff like crazy to make money, you know, you might get into trouble with it. And I, I think that, that that's the big difference between the two cultures. In the one culture, there's this sense that our relationships to the things of life have to be thought through and they have to be memorialized and we need, we need even to spend time, you know, like holding ceremonies for that and sacrifice for that and thinking about, about that because you think about it. Corn right now uh, provides, provides more calories than any other crop in the United States and the form of calories it provides is in the form of corn syrup. And the, and the way that it's providing most of those calories is through stuff like soda pops and additives to the kinds of foods that are created and cooked by the multinational corporations that are making us all sick and giving us diabetes and making us fat and doing all other horrible stuff to us. Corn is, is, can be our biggest and most wonderful friend and, and misused, I have a feeling, corn can be something very, very uh, negative and dangerous for us. But, of course, thinking about corn as a food and thinking about corn as a way to make money are two different ways of looking at the world. And looking at it as, a, as something profane, looking at corn as just saying it's a profane thing, it's just an object, it's just, we can manipulate that, I think is, a, is the biggest difference. Because I think the Indians would have looked at that and said, well, that can manipulate us. <laughs> something, there's something here that we have to think about more than we're thinking about it. So I, I thought I'd mention that. And, and this goes to other plants, too. Why don't we do this? Um, we have about 20 or 25 minutes left. Um, why don't each one of you, if you have some short point you'd like to make, two or three minute point, and then maybe we'll open it up to questions after that. So um, does anyone have something? Well, I'd just like to add to what John said, um, the importance of um, a food shamanism. Um, and this is something that one doesn't uh, hear about too much, but um, essentially at the, the heart of the um, um, shamanic way of looking at uh, plants and animals is that there's um, 
uh, a kinship and an identity there. And one of the main human problems is the, the fact that we're eating all these other beings all the time. We need to ingest other beings so as to live. So there's, a, there's death and life, and our life depends on death, and there's a, a cycle an ecological and cosmic cycle. And people like uh, uh, Reichel Dolmatov have written about this very eloquently, uh, one of these anthropologists in the 1970s who really went into the detail of what uh, indigenous people in the Amazon uh, thought about the world. Um, <clears throat> and so it's true, it is also about these fundamental issues of, uh, of what we eat and how we interact with the, the world. It's not just a, a weekend workshop. Francis, do you have anything? Anything you'd like to interject here? No? John? If you... Well, probably the, the, the most, the strangest episode in Western culture was uh, the, the oppression of people who use plants for healing, uh, which basically took place during the, the Inquisition, although it had been brewing for a few centuries before the Inquisition. And what, what made it really kind of, I think, uh, a... Uh, a peculiarity was that it was it was a way of protecting. I mean, the mentality behind the oppression of the of the of the medicine people, who they identified as witches, uh, the oppression of that was a way of protecting the state and the marriage the state had with the Catholic Church. And so, in a way, when when uh, you you have a culture here which is very peculiar in the sense that it makes the possession of certain plants illegal, <laughs> use of plants illegal. You know, you you would. You would have a Martian come here from someplace else and say, what's the strangest thing you do? Oh, we make plants illegal. You know, you can't have any plants. <laughs> you know, it is. <laughs> but it, 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 it kind of has this sort of history that they're worried that this will undermine the power of the state. So you'll notice that two things are, are rigidly held upon by the state. The state wants to license certain substances, and the state wants to license the people who manage the substances. And in the, in the, its origins are long ago lost, and you know they don't make any sense at all in, in our century. But but I suppose if you're a really superstitious person living in the what, what was that the 15th century, then you could make the connection. But uh, we've we've reached a place now where it is legal to have very very dangerous things. You don't have to worry about that. You can have all sorts of weapons, 50 caliber. Uh, machine guns and everything else, you can have that, but possession of a marijuana plant will get you in a lot of hot water. And uh, I, I just want to point that out, that the reason for it is a paranoia um, in the people in power worried that it would undermine the power of the state and the marriage of the state to the state religion. So, and I believe that we still have a state religion, and, and we still have that marriage, and we still have an inquisition, but I'm alone on that one. <laughs> Uh, thank you all for, for sharing your wisdom with us today. Uh, I have a burning, burning question that's been kind of ongoing in my life. The revelation that shamanism, as I you know, read about it, was showed it, was uh, to have some words and, and, and a sense that, that the journey into the darkness and the mystical and, and the things that can be traumatic, not just the lovely mystical, but the, but the real kind of meat of living, that there, there, there was some tribal understanding of that and, and some procedures and some place in society. And a number of speakers have talked about something that I pay attention to in our culture, which is that we're just so afraid of the dark in this culture and the, and the whole way that then that comes out in, in the shadow side. So what I wonder, and I think maybe that's why one of the reasons our culture is interested in shamanism is 
what you guys see is how it can serve us to reintegrate our shadow so that we don't have to keep projecting it out into the rest of the world. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> They're afraid of their shadows, I think. <laughs> it takes a long time. Um, I think uh, one of the most interesting things Michael Hanna ever wrote was uh, a piece on uh, Hivaru, um, Ayahuasking, of how the novice goes and um, implores his uh, mentor to give him some magic substance after a drink of ayahuasca. The uh, shaman then vomits up a luminous piece of white ectoplasmic something or another, cuts it off with a bit of bamboo and says, swallow that. Um, keep your taboos for nine months. Uh, no women, no meat except uh, fish and potatoes and stuff, you know, just keep yourself, sing all the time and, and do your stuff that way. And you'll find, an <clears throat> after, after that time, you'll find a sudden urge to vomit it all up again. Well, it, you can use it then, but if you do, you'll become a killing shaman. So the best thing, if you want to be a curing shaman, is to swallow it for another few months. The next time it comes up, you can use it for curing. Uh, I found this to be quite true. I uh, um, have myself been in the throes of psychotherapeutic mania when I started off. I've met quite a number of psychoanalytic uh, novices getting onto it, and they're all in infused with a kind of rage about the world, and um, if they're not, they want to kill something, that's for certain. And uh, it's a very dangerous, interesting um, period to be in. And I can well understand with something like ayahuasca that the effects, first of all, are uh, resentful against the rest of the world, and especially amongst the Hivaru, who are notoriously, you were saying before, uh, some of the most notoriously paranoid headhunters ever, ever to walk the Andes, uh, did you know they even give uh, ayahuasca to their newborn children? Isn't that interesting? What happens there? At any rate, this particular s a s a switch from, from um, uh, finding that you're in power of your own shadow and using it against other people and swallowing it, like swallowing your rage or your bad temper until you've digested the whole thing and... <laughs> seen what it's made of, this is a very laborious process and uh, it can take us a lifetime to get rid of our ill temper against the world. <laughs> so I'm all in favor of getting uh, one shadow uh, at least um, bridled up to the system, you know, if, if, like a horse and buggy. It can at least pull one's horse and buggy, but uh, Man, once your shadow is on the loose, have a care. Let's take one on, on the left here. Yes, he was asking, I think, about Rupert Sheldrake's idea of the morphogenetic field and how that related to Jeremy's theory. I believe that that's, that's the question. Jeremy? <laughs> Those are Rupert Sheldrake's theories, and it happens uh, that um, Rupert and Francis are close friends, so it seems almost most appropriate to 
have Francis answer <laughs> the question. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake is uh, um, notable among scientists in being a uh, practicing Christian with an open heart, a good heart, and a forgiving one. He told me when I was full of resentment for something that had happened to me, that when he was in such a state, he prayed to be forgiven for being unable to forgive, <laughs> which I have used for myself a very good prayer. Um, he has been interested in the power of prayer and the power of groups to do one thing or another. I wouldn't call him uh, a shaman, however, and I don't see that um, uh, what he is about at this moment has very much to do with our concerns right now. One can see that um, if you can, the arts of, of controlling your audience, <laughs> making them laugh, as uh, uh, Jeremy is such a, an adept at, uh, keeping the whole thing convivial is a marvelous uh, skill to learn, which can be used one way or another. And when you d really do have a whole group focused on one event, um, the, the, the power coming out of it is indeed powerful. This Brazilian shaman, I know, I could see him activate various people amongst his uh, audience in order to be at the focus point of what he was doing. Uh, I have no difficulty in understanding that or in seeing it happen. Um, this is an art you can cultivate. It's difficult to know how you describe it, let alone measure it. What are you measuring? Uh, this is one of those things we, the only measure, measuring devices we have uh, ourselves. There's no other measure for what's happening under these circumstances. Let's go over here to the right. Um, I just, I wanted to make a very short statement. This, this question and answer is a psychedelic. And th the fact that you can ask me what my question will be is a psychedelic. And the information that's coming from these people is a psychedelic. So my question to the people who are speaking to a bunch of imbibers of that psychedelic, um, what is your hope for uh, people's imbibing of that psychedelic? Um, and specifically, uh, in what way do you think, what is your hope for the evolution of a kind of ensemble shamanism that you alluded to in contemporary group possession? Uh, that happens in indigenous cultures and is now happening since the rock and roll shaman of the 60s uh, on a group scale by media. And what is your hope for shamanism as a, as a tool that's moving forward? I think that um, ayahuasca in particular functions as an amplifier of uh, human nature. And so depending on who imbibes, it um, amplifies the signal. I like people, but I think there are a lot of uh, strange people in the world with, with strange values. And, um, you know, uh, some of them drink ayahuasca and they just get stranger. Um, so what hope, what hope does one have uh, to amplify the world? Well, actually, clearly one wants to turn up the things that sound good and, and turn down the things that sound less good, but it's, it's not all that possible. It's a, 
you know, people are out there and it's, it's on the loose. So I have as many worries as I do um, hopes. I think it can certainly potentiate, it amplifies. So if you're an artist, it can make you more artistic. Uh, you know, I have m musician friends and uh, um, they've uh, changed ways of approaching music and it just go goes on. Uh, there's a film shortly about, I took three molecular biologists down to um, the Peruvian Amazon to work with an indigenous ayahuasquero and the idea was to uh, for them to participate in an ayahuasca session to enhance their understanding of molecular biology and um, you got to see the film um, <clears throat> because it seems to um, have worked to a certain extent this is a first step so it, it can be used to to gain bona fide knowledge and um, I must believe that this is a good thing I, I I believe in knowledge, um, but I've also seen on the ayahuasca trails, all the ayahuasca tourism, all kinds of abuses and charlatans and, and ugly things, and I also think it's urgent to get a discussion of that out on the table. Does John, do you have anything you want to say about that? Or? Well, my, my hopes are way too ambitious for to be practical, but I'll lay them out anyway. Um. <laughs> There's a, there's, a, there's a paradox about allopathic medicine. We all know that the people who have the most faith in it have the best luck with it. And I always, I always loved one statistic I saw 30 years ago. The statistic was that uh, if you take 100 people go to the doctors, 10% of them get better, 10% get worse, and the rest of them don't see any change. The, the other one I like always, of course, is uh, Ken Ossible's favorite saying. He says that when the doctors go on strike, the death rate goes down. <laughs> uh, uh, faith, faith healing is a puzzle because it's, it's, it's not really accepted in the academic West. I mean, it's accepted that it exists, but we don't know anything about it. And yet, at the same time, uh, when you go into the indigenous practices, it's absolutely not clear where the faith healing ends and some other kind of healing is taking place. It's absolutely not clear. There's, everything is brought to bear. The faith, the, the, uh, the other world, the herbs, the whole thing, everything is brought to bear. And it, it seems to me that that's a, a good way to do things. I'm hopeful, I, I, I'd like to see that we can find ways to take advantage of the advantages of that knowing also I'm not, I'm not a person who's about to attack a lot of the allopathic practices either. I think if you get shot by a gunshot, that, that's probably what you want. You probably want surgery so plug you up. But, but you know and I know that there are instances in terms of healing practices where allopathic medicine gives up. And there are other things that can be done before you ever need to bring allopathic medicine into it. And a lot of times, allopathic medicine gives you a choice of three options. They're going to burn you, cut you, or poison you. And sometimes one of those three options is the right option, and other times it's not. I'm, I'm hoping that we'll, we will learn enough to bring the best kinds of, of uh, healing practices to bear and maybe make them available to more people you know, someday. I, I think the other piece, though, I'd like to mention is that if we were going to do that, uh, the culture itself would have to, to have to move a few degrees away from its own ethnocentric bearings and start looking at other things. I one time went to a conference, I was asked to come to the University of Toronto and talk about uh, indigenous healing practices. 
and it was the a whole health, there was about 70 people were in a seminar, and it was a whole healthcare uh, group, all healthcare professionals were taking the seminar, got there, and in Toronto, the healthcare professionals were almost, like 80% of them had been born in, an, in another continent and moved to Canada. So there we were in here, we were talking about other people's uh, thing. Well, there are people here from China and people here from the Philippines and folks from, from South America and people from Africa and all over the world, Korea. And in the conversation that we had, it turned out that all those peoples had health practices that were more like indigenous health practices. <laughs> they all had herb doctors, they all had ceremonies, they all had blah, blah, blah. The, the, the odd one in the world, the unusual thing in the world is the pure allopathic medicine with nothing else to it. That, that's, that's the unusual practice in the world. And I would think that it would be nice if, if uh, I was, when I was reading this book, I was thinking that, my gosh, if we could do that, but it would take a seed change in a way in, in, the, in the ethnocentric elements about healthcare practices. But that's happening anyway, isn't it? I mean, it's already on its way. And I was just thinking, boy, if, if uh, we could find ways to explain this better, that those, those same kind of practices could be brought to bear. In many cases, I can't see any reason why you couldn't do both at the same time. I just completely lost at that. I don't know why you can't take penicillin and have a ceremony at the same time. <laughs> it's, just, it's lost to me. <laughs> it's, I'm afraid we have time for one more short question, and that's it. So over here on the right. I would actually, I think you answered my first question, but I think I would like to have the other two uh, maybe address may, maybe ways that we could stop uh, talking about shamanism only in terms of um, you know, a, a native healer somewhere or in terms of what you do when you're on drugs. I come from a community in Eugene, Oregon, where people do these healings all the time and have all sorts of practices that could be considered shamanic without any drugs. And it's just, it's a part of my normal life now. And it's almost, it's been so weird hearing you talking about um, sh shamanism as something else. And I think I'd like to hear the other two speakers address, address it since um, the, the last speaker just did. Well, I wanted to mention before it was over, there's a, a website um, uh, that is about science and shamanism. I think it's 3W, scienceandshamanism.org. And it's a psychologist and neuroscientist from um, Colorado called Valerie Stone who runs this. So she's trying to get a, a dialogue between the ways of knowledge um, going. Um, Valerie, are you in the room? Could you say what the address is? I don't want to interrupt the answer to that question. It's www.shamanicscience.org. Um, we are trying to get dialogue going between scientists and indigenous people and anyone who's interested in truth and is willing to approach nature with respect, humility, and awe. So um, please visit the website, please get in touch, and uh, feel free to come talk to me. Um, but let me turn it back to the question that she asked about what about shamanic practices that don't necessarily involve drugs? If the question is, why haven't I studied neo-shamans? Um, for me, this, um, the whole question has been about the, the knowledge of the indigenous people of the Western Amazon with whom I've been working for the last um, two decades. And um, that's how I consider it. I think it would be interesting if there were more anthropologists who, who did study uh, neo-shamanic movements. And I think there's a difference, but the, the rule of anthropology is that you live with people and participate, and that's how you understand where they're at um, before you actually speak about them. I haven't uh, lived in a neo-shamanic community, and um, 
you know, I just don't know enough to, to really say about it. And what I talk about, what I try to talk about mainly, is what's going on in the Amazon with its indigenous people there. Um, you know, and at least it, it, it may be a little bit myopic, uh, but it, it's specific, you know. Um, but I wish you well. Francis, do you have anything to say about that? I know, yeah. About uh, R.D. Lang, perhaps? If there was a time machine, uh, one of the things I would most like to go back and see is about 30,000 B.C. to see Paleolithics at work in the caves of southern France. Uh, <laughs> they had, it's quite plain, they had a perception of this world and a skill to um, express it in, uh, with the most primitive of materials, um, which has never been surpassed. They had a wholeness of intention, quite obviously, um, and I would very much like to see or to have been around one of those people. When I think of the uh, ideal shamanic temperament, uh, I home in in some wish to recapture that archaic splendor, uh, whatever the miseries of saber-toothed tigers eating your toenails at night might be, um, because um, they are such a, a marvelous exemplars of the wholeness of, of perceptual bliss and knowledge all at the same time. I can't see that the use of psychedelics of any kind is of very much interest to me, except in trying to recapture that, that uh, archaic state in which you're all together in yourself. It must have co cost them a, a little, quite a bit, I should imagine. From what one knows of the Bushmen, uh, they had regular parties doing this kind of thing all the time. And if you think of Bushman painting, it's the nearest equivalent, only died out uh, 150 years ago or so, to Paleolithic art. So there are still people who have that archaic wholeness of being, and um, I can't think of any better way of thinking of hallucinogens of one kind or another to stop specializing and um, do it all together. Okay, thank you very much, and please...